you know, working on the things that are exciting to you, um, I think can yield the greatest benefit. I think there's a, a pressure sometimes to work on the things that look like they're going to promise the greatest rewards. And there's certainly points in life where you need to follow those, whether it's, you know, you need to pay off a loan or support your family. But if you can, I feel like you're going to get a lot out of being able to work on the things that excite you. For me, that was really true when I moved from Google to here at Color. Like a lot of people thought it was a really stupid decision. You know, I was going from a really big, secure, successful company to a pre-funding six-person startup as a, a mom of two small children. Um, but, you know, it's given me enormous satisfaction from the growth perspective. So I would say, you know, working on things that excite you is really important. Hello and welcome back to I Want Her Job, the podcast. Our guest today is Wendy McKinnon. She's the head of user experience at Color Genomics, a digital health startup whose mission is to help people make the most of their health information. Color Genomics created a lower cost $250 physician ordered genetic test for breast and ovarian cancer risk. And the lower cost of this test was transformative as it changed how many people could afford to get this information. When Wendy joined as the first designer, there were six people on the team. Today, Wendy is leading product and design for a team of 10. In this show, we discuss what it's like to work in user experience, what Wendy looks for when she is hiring, and the incredible inspirations in her life that shaped her interests and the source of her biggest inspiration. Here's Wendy sharing her story. So Color's mission is to help people make the most of their health information. Uh, about two years ago, we launched our first product, which was a genetic test for breast and ovarian cancer risk. And by offering a physician-ordered test that can be used at home and only costing $249, it was pretty revolutionary um, in that it was addressing some of the really common barriers or friction points that exist for genetic testing. So for example, um, the price before we entered was around, gosh, several thousand dollars at least if you didn't have insurance coverage. You know, a lot of people didn't even think about genetic testing or think that it would be relevant for them. And then even once they got to the point of thinking about it, the logistics of, you know, making the different appointments with specialists, checking insurance coverage, you know, traveling if you didn't live near some sort of um, specialist was, you know, a lot and it added up. So we really looked at that and thought we could make a difference by trying to address those various pain points or friction points. Um, and then last year we expanded this into a genetic test for the eight most common hereditary cancers. And then last month we launched a genetic test for hereditary high cholesterol. So that's color. And my role here has changed quite a bit over the last few years. So when I first joined, there was about six people um, and I was the first designer to join the team. And then over the last few years, I've taken on additional responsibility as far as leading product as well as design. Amazing. And um, before we get into your role, I'd just like to uh, ask a few more questions. So your target customer, who is it that's using um, and ordering your kits? Yeah, great question. So when we first launched, um, we had two targets. Basically, they were people who were interested um, and were, had heard maybe about genetic testing, whether it was because somebody in their family had increased risk. You know, maybe they'd heard about Angelina Jolie, um, but somebody that was aware and was trying to learn more information. Um, additionally, we are a physician ordered test, which means that somebody's doctor could be the one that brings up the topic with them and says, you know, based on the family history that you have, we think you may benefit from having genetic testing. So we really, when we think about who we're targeting, you know, it's people who are just learning versus people whose doctor had ordered the test for them and then we're going through the process. Got it. And so you mentioned eight more hereditary cancers. What are a few on those lists? Yeah. So those include things like it still includes breast cancer, ovarian cancer, um, prostate cancer, uh, stomach cancer. Um, there's, and there's a few more that round that out. 
Wow. I didn't even know that you could do that genetic for, for that. And so once people find the results, then they go back to their doctor and create a health plan. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And we really, because, you know, it all goes back to how much we want to make sure that the information is actionable and useful and well-informed. We include genetic counseling as a part of our service. So if somebody isn't working with a genetic counselor yet, we have um, genetic counselors that can help them answer any questions and then help them find a specialist if needed or help them and their health healthcare provider um, understand what to do with the information if it's not totally clear already from the results that we create. Got it. And and how is the work that Color is doing getting closer to um, improving treatments or cures? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the, the thing that we're doing right now is really helping people understand whether or not they're at increased risk. And if they're at increased risk, directing them towards the screening guidelines that are appropriate for people that do have increased risk. So from the perspective of how we're going and helping to improve treatments, it's really about helping connect people with treatment information that's out there already and helping them understand what's relevant for them. Um, so for example, you know, interesting to me, I didn't realize that, you know, one in eight women in the U.S. will have breast cancer in their lifetime. And of those one in eight, um, about 15% has a genetic cause. And if you know that there's a genetic cause, there's actually different screening guidelines that you should be following so that you can potentially catch or prevent um, that cancer at an earlier um, or more treatable, more treatable state. So really, the work that we're doing is trying to connect people with the information that's already in their bodies so that they and their healthcare provider can you know, do the right screening that is sort of appropriate for where they're at and where their genes are at. Got it. And also at a lower cost, right? Because I'm sure before it was prohibitive, so you couldn't even get to it because of the costs, right? Yeah. No, I mean, for me, it's just fascinating to see, one, how healthcare works. I didn't work in healthcare prior to this. Um, and two, how if you merge technology with healthcare, a lot of the benefits that can come from it. So as you mentioned, when we um, were first working on launching our product, the cost of testing for breast and ovarian cancer, genetic testing in particular, was I think around like $4,000 maybe if you looked at the top end of the scale if you didn't have insurance coverage. Um, and that's a huge amount of money. And there's certainly people who do go through insurance and get insurance to cover it. But that huge amount of money is still getting billed into the medical system, which is also pretty crazy. Um, so we looked at it and we said, you know what? We don't think it needs to cost that much. When we look at the way that the cost of um, genetic sequencing is coming down and then you additionally layer on that a lot of smart things that you can do with algorithms and engineering to make these processes more efficient. So we really wanted to see what we could do to drive those prices down so that individuals could benefit as well as the overall healthcare system, you know, in the grand scheme of things can benefit. Thank you. And let's get into your role. So what does someone in user experience do day to day? Yeah, you know, I think user experience design to me is just a, a fancy name for problem solving. Um, I think, you know, the best solutions to problems are usually informed by good information. So a user experience designer will usually spend, you know, some part of their day information gathering, whether it's, you know, understanding user needs, um, understanding business goals or technical constraints. And then they'll spend some part of their day working on solutions and getting feedback on the solutions and iterating on them. And then some part of their day selling those solutions. So someone once told me that the best design is ones that actually get implemented. So I think a really a successful designer is one that can sell their work on others so they can see, really see the merit of their ideas. So give us an example of a problem that you would try to solve. And sell. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like at a high level, like a really good one is when I first joined Color. Um, as I mentioned, my background was not in healthcare. My background was not in genetics. Um, I didn't have any personal firsthand experience with it either. 
So somebody who's coming from, you know, a really different background, the first thing I wanted to do was just really understand what was going on in the space. So I went and, you know, we were small and scrappy, so it wasn't like having a huge research team that I could, you know, give a question to and they'd come back with information. So I really had to go in and work my own network and talk to as many healthcare providers and genetic counselors and patients as I could find who were currently currently using genetic testing in their practice or had used it personally and try and understand what was working for them, what wasn't working, um, what was their, what were their experiences, what were their workflows. Take all of that information and all of those stories and sit back and look for any patterns. So like one of the patterns that we saw were that genetic counseling is this amazing profession that I didn't know existed before I joined Color. Um, and I probably will get this wrong technically, but my, my perception of a genetic counselor is they have really great um, biology skills and genetic skills and they understand the science but they also understand people really well. So they can really do a great job of translating some of these complicated concepts to normal human beings who don't have all that background. So I looked at some of the work that genetic counselors were doing in these workflows, and I saw that a lot of things, one of the things they were doing a lot of was saying the same information over and over to people, trying to help them understand the benefits and the limitations. And to say it's the same, you know, is somewhat of a generalization, but there was a lot of the same key points. So then my next step as a designer was to look at that and think, well, how could we do this better so that we can open up genetic genetic counselors' time to be spent doing more of the unique conversations with patients? It's also a field that's really understaffed. So just figuring out like how we can make the mm-hmm. genetic counselors more efficient in their work. Um, and so one of the outcomes of that then was um, an educational video that we put together that covers a lot of those benefits and limitations so that they don't have to say the same things over and over, and then they can spend their time using doing more effective things. So that was really, again, looking at doing information gathering, um, trying to understand what were some of the limitations and the goals, um, and then working on something that we did iterate a lot on. It wasn't like we got it right the first time. Um, so yeah, at a high level, that's one good example, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. And so since you started, what what have been the biggest challenges and what has surprised you the most about being in this industry? I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges for me was just going from like a really big company to a small, a small company. Um, and it was one of the reasons why I made the shift as well. Uh, I was at Google for a number of years prior. And one of the benefits of being at a really big company is that there's lots of specialists. And if you have a problem, you can ask somebody for help. And then going and doing a startup, all of a sudden you realize that if you have a question, um, the best person you're going to be able to ask to figure it out is yourself because everyone else has a million other things that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So um, you, know, I, you might have some of those the same experiences in your job, I would imagine, as well. Um, so I think that's that's been sort of the biggest challenge and it's a challenge in a good way because it's also forced me to grow a lot in my skills. Got it. And I see you studied symbolic systems at Stanford and so many with this degree go on to leadership roles in tech. So I'm wondering what is it about those, that particular field of study um, and how it influenced your career path? Yeah, that's right. It's an interesting observation that I, I couldn't put my finger on what the answer is, but I would definitely say I've seen that same pattern as well. Um, I personally just stumbled into the program um, I was in school in the late 90s, and back then, and even maybe now still, it's a, it was a pretty small program. I think there was only about 30 people in my class. Um, and for people who don't know, it's an inter- interdisciplinary program, so it brings together computer science, uh, linguistics, philosophy, and psychology. And when I was in school, I was became really enamored of computer science. I loved it. I really enjoyed the problem-solving aspect, but for the life of me, I could not pass engineering-level physics. And the CS program was in the engineering school. So I was sort of trying to figure out my other options. And I was flipping through the course catalog. And I came across this really weird sounding major. Um, 
And I was not like one of those forward thinking people who's trying to figure out how they would have a job when they graduated. So something like symbolic systems sounded awesome. Um, and in general, though, I think what happens is that it attracts pretty independent thinkers who make connections between some like some seemingly disparate topics, which I think is pretty good for problem solving. So my guess is that perhaps some of those tendencies have gone on to helping people, you know, grow into leadership roles in technology here in the Silicon Valley. Yeah, and I love that it's it's already combining like like you said different disciplines and fields, so it kind of trains you to start thinking that way, right? Um, yeah, and it's just a lot of fun too. So I, it was a win win. Sounds like it. So you yeah. mentioned you like computer science at an early age. I'd love to hear like when did that develop, and tell us a little about your early influences and how your like your family and background influenced um, where you think may have influenced where you are today. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so as far as my early influences, I am the youngest of four kids. Um, my parents were divorced before I can even remember, so I was raised predominantly by my mom. And she was an amazing role model in that she was really hardworking. Um, you know, she left the marriage with four kids, no degree, and, you know, put herself through college, raised us all. None of us are total hoodlums. And, um, you know, did her, I think she was an amazing role model. Um, and through that, my dad was also in the picture, and he would actually come up. You know, back then, you know, how divorces worked was quite different than it is now, so we'd see him maybe once a month. Um, and when he would come over, though, he would actually um, teach me coding. So I remember, um, gosh, it was probably maybe C. I remember the first language that he was starting to teach me things in was C. And that wasn't, it wasn't like it was something that I was doing all the time, but I think at a young age, I was exposed to it, and that was back in gosh, late 80s, early 90s. So it wasn't like very normal. Um, so I think probably that fed into my future interest as well as also enabling me to think that it was something that was even possible for me. You know, it wasn't something that was just for boys or it was just for like techies or nerds. It was just, you know, something interesting. I, that's fascinating. Do you remember how old you were when he started teaching you? I'm guessing it was probably around fifth grade, maybe something like that. Yeah. See, I, that's amazing. Like when introducing something like that kind of set your life course. Um, yeah. I think those little things do make a difference. Yeah. So tell us about any more kind of defining moments or shifts um, in your career paths that you took that um, really helped you. Yeah. I think, you know, one that comes to mind um, is really early in my career. It was my first year out of college and um, don't laugh. I was working at what was called an e-commerce consultancy. It sounds totally sticky. Um, but this was back in like 1999 and the economy was booming. It was before it collapsed in like 2001. Uh, and I was, I guess this was about 2000. It was about one year out of college. And I found out that we were going to be opening um, an office in, in Japan. And at that time I was living in New York and I was really interested, but I also was pretty convinced that I was too young and there's no way that they would ever let somebody, you know, with so much or so little experience actually take on that responsibility. Um, but my manager at the time really encouraged me and then said, you know, if you're interested, it can't hurt to ask. And I did. And I ended up being given the opportunity to go and do that. And for me, it was just a really excellent opportunity of um, one, how important it is to foster the people that you work with and really encourage them. And two, to take or take chances, even when you think somebody's going to say no, the worst thing they can do is say no. <laughs> and the best thing that can happen is that you get that opportunity. And maybe you're not ready for it, but maybe you can stretch yourself and learn the skills. And maybe you can't, and then you go and try something else. So it's worth the risk, I think. It was one of my big learnings from that. That's great. And tell us like, what kind of advice you'd give to others who would want to pursue careers in user experience. I would say, you know, 
when I look at candidates, for example, um, who are interviewing for jobs, I look for a few different things. One, having a portfolio is really important. So even if you're early in your career, some of the creative things that I've seen candidates do is take on their own projects. So they'll see something they don't think is very well designed and design it. You know, and it's not like anybody's paying them to do it, but at least they're starting to build um, something in their portfolio that shows how they can think through problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also really look for good analytical thinkers, people who clearly are not, you know, designing in a vacuum, um, aren't just designing things that look pretty, but are also really trying to understand a lot of the real world, you know, effects of, of that are going to be influencing the work that they're doing and good storytelling. So um, if I see somebody's work that looks great, but I don't really know all of the inputs, I'm much less interested in it versus somebody who can tell the why and the how and you know, what went into creating this great thing that they've made. Got it. And can, do you remember any kind of stories or people that really impressed you? Kind of. I would have to say it's less from my career and more my mom. Um, and I don't know if that's like, yes, kind of that's totally relevant. I would love, I mean, your mom already to me, I'm so impressed. And where did you grow up? What, what state or I'm from Eastern Washington's, a relatively small town called Spokane. Yeah. Tell me more about your mom. I mean, already I'm so impressed. Yeah. You know, I think she, like I said, she, um, ended up on her own in a really tough situation, probably one that she never would have imagined. Um, when she was younger, she wanted to be an architect since she was little, she went to college, um, met my dad, fell in love, had a kid, tried to stay in college, but it was too much work. And at that point, you know, the normal career trajectory wasn't much of one. You basically got married and had kids. Mm-hmm. So she did that and she figured she didn't need to finish her career. So she quit. Um, and then, you know, later in her life, she found herself without a degree, four little kids. And um, rather than, you know, going maybe the easy route of just sort of coasting or getting a simple job, she really decided she wanted to follow her passion, which was architecture. And so, um, you know, she got neighbors to help with babysitting the kids. Um, I went into the university daycare, which I think she always felt a lot of guilt about. But I think, you know, I, I don't think it mattered one way or the other, to be honest with you. Um, and she worked really hard and it's not like she's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Like she can make me totally crazy. Um, but she's a really honest person. She's hardworking. Uh, she cares a lot about the work that she does. As I mentioned, she's an architect and I think it's another good example of being an excellent designer. To me, a really good designer is somebody who can take into the practicalities of the situation. So in an architect's case, it's like, how big is your family? Um, what are your normal day to day workflows, what's important to you? Is it like the family space? Is it the bedrooms? And then also taking into account somebody's aesthetic and building something that's really beautiful and functional. So I think she was a great example of doing that. And for me, it was really inspirational in the work that I do now in my career. Absolutely. And do you, how old was she when she went decided to go back to architecture school? I think she must have been, gosh, probably 38, maybe 36, something around there. That is so, so- definitely the oldest person in her class. <laughs> So, so impressive. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, okay. And what about uh, any kind of uh, resources, things you read um, that help you get better at your job you would recommend to others? Yeah. So one thing I've been noticing these days is that um, Medium, their algorithm has been getting better and better. So on a pretty regular basis in my inbox, there are articles that have been sent my way that I find like really interesting and relevant. Um in particular, um, and I'm probably going to mispronounce her name, but there is, uh, I think she's like VP of product management at Facebook. Her name is Julie, Julie Zoe. Mm-hmm. Um, she writes a really great series that I always find generally inspirational just from like a human level as well as from a product level and a design level. 
Got it. Another another oldie but goodie. Um, it's pretty conventional. It's called Higher Output Management by Andy yes. Grove. Yes, yeah. read that one. <laughs> yeah, it has a, just. I think it just has a lot of really great basic tenets about being a good manager and a leader. So I find myself revisiting that from time to time. And then one of the more recent ones that I enjoyed is pretty cliche and trendy, but also really great, which is the hard thing about hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just for the where we are at, at color and a growing company, I found it to be really relevant. Totally. Great suggestions. Um, and what about, what do you, what would, what do you love to do outside of work? Hobbies, interests you pursue? As far as hobbies, I would say for better or worse, uh, when you have a really demanding job, it's hard to fit in the time. Um, and then you can probably identify with this. I have kids. Mm-hmm. So those end up taking a really big chunk of my time, kids and my partner. Um, but one of the things that I also really treasure, and I've found that it's super important for me to carve out this time is my Sunday morning runs with my girlfriends. And for me, that's just like, even when I'm crazy busy and super stressed out, if I can just make an hour or two, um, even once a week, that's purely for myself and not for other people, it really helps me recharge and, you know, be a better person. I love that. So do you have this standing time, um, in a group of girlfriends to run every yep. Sunday? Yep. Every Sunday morning, you know, people travel and are not there, but there's a few of us that meet up and we go through Golden Gate Park, then, you know, get toast and coffee and catch up and do grocery shopping. And it's just, you know, one of the really, really delightful moments of my week. I love that. Okay. Um, and anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners about the industry you're in, um, pursuing careers, either, you know, in digital health, the burgeoning like genetics companies or in a uh, type of role that you have? Yeah, you know, I'd say if I was going to give a few words of advice, and I know some of these things are totally a luxury and, you know, life doesn't always afford you luxuries, um, but, you know, working on the things that are exciting to you, um, I think can yield the greatest benefit. I think there's a a pressure sometimes to work on the things that look like they're going to promise the greatest rewards. And there's certainly points in life where you need to follow those, whether it's, you know, you need to pay off a loan or support your family. But if you can, I feel like you're going to get a lot out of being able to work on the things that excite you. For me, that was really true when I moved from Google to here at Color. Like a lot of people thought it was a really stupid decision. You know, I was going from a really big, secure, successful company to a pre-funding six-person startup as a a mom of two small children. Um, But, you know, it's given me enormous satisfaction from the growth perspective. So I would say, you know, working on things that excite you is really important. Um, And if you're having a hard time, like reach out to other people. Uh, I think a a lot of times people will be surprised to find that other people are also having a hard time. Uh, I think maybe it's a female tendency to just presume though that, you know, it's just you and you're incompetent. But I think the more you talk to people, the more you'll find that other people are also having struggles. Um, you know, ignoring the voice in your head that says you're not good enough and just trying. Mm-hmm. And I would say like maybe the biggest one is treating people with kindness. Like when you look around in the world, um, I think it can make such a huge difference to you and to how other people feel in the world. So what issues in our world, aside from your business, um, your daily job, were you the most and where you want to be more involved? You know, for, for really personal reasons, uh, one of the issues that's been top of mind for me these days and for the last few years is alcoholism. Um, I'll get a little teary-eyed, but uh, my older sister died this past year um, after a really grueling battle with the disease of alcoholism. And the experience has given me really heartbreaking insi- insights into our society's lack of acknowledgement that it's a disease And just like any other disease, there's a genetic component that's really not acknowledged. And the side effect of this is that treatment options, I think, are pretty limited. 
So, you know, when I look at, you know, issues in our world and something that in, you know, the grander scheme that I would want to be involved in, I would like to hope that at some point in my life I can do something that would positively change this or impact it. I'm so sorry. And thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I think a lot of people don't know about the genetic component of it. So, um, thank you. And, and I think the work that you're doing is so important. And is, is there, uh, something colors doing on that front? Um, not at this time. So we're always definitely looking at, um, where we can provide the most value and certainly, you know, things related to, you know, addiction and genetic tendencies towards that are something that have potential, but right now there's nothing that we're putting out into the public. Yeah. Are there any organizations you kind of know of or support that, that are doing work for that? You know, what's so amazing to me is that over the last year, you know, there's been a number of people who really like with great intentions have wanted to donate money to, to such an organization and they're almost impossible to find. I found one on the East coast whose name is, um, escaping me at this time, but even that it wasn't totally clear that it was incredibly credible just because there's so little like acknowledgement of these services. Mm-hmm. Um, which for me was just a really eye opening experience because alcohol, alcoholism is such a like huge issue. Mm-hmm. I think though, because it's also like a really socially accepted thing to do. Um, there's just not a lot of, there's a lot of focus on things like, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, you know, great services, but a lot of those are more about, you know, spiritual and, um, you know, I don't know whether it's, you know, helping with willpower and much less about the medical side. Yeah. And at a certain point, I mean, I saw this documentary where when in alcoholism, it changes your, your like brain. brain chemistry in your brain, yeah. right? So you yeah. physically can't stop. So thank you yeah. for, for sharing that. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to chat.